Friends, welcome to Word on Fire Catholic Ministries. Word on Fire is an apostolate dedicated to the mission of evangelization, using media both old and new to share the faith on every continent and to facilitate an encounter with Christ and His Church. The efforts of Word on Fire engage the culture and bring the transformative power of God's Word where it is most needed. Today, we invite you to join Bishop Robert Barron as he preaches the gospel and shares the warmth and light of Christ with each one of us. Peace be with you. Friends, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah are among the most interesting and intriguing in the Bible, though they're often overlooked. They describe a key moment in Israelite history when the exiles were trickling home from Babylon and seeking to reestablish their lives. To me, one of the most heartbreaking scenes in the whole Bible is Nehemiah's description of Jerusalem, which had once been a stately city, now lying in waste as the conquerors had left it years before. To get the feeling of that, think of a Parisian returning to the ruins of Paris. Let's say it had been devastated by a foreign invader or an ancient Roman returning to the ruins of Rome after a barbarian invasion, or bring it closer to home, think of a Chicagoan returning to the ruins of Chicago after it had been devastated by an army or a natural disaster. That's what it felt like to Nehemiah, Ezra, and the other Israelites as they came back to once beautiful Jerusalem. Now, at the very heart of the disaster, was the fact that the walls of the city had been compromised. In the ancient world, and indeed practically up to modern times, a wall was essential to the health of a city, a bit like the way the wall of a cell is essential to the endurance of a cell. If a wall were breached, then a city just lay open to invaders of all stripes, if the wall was breached, its economic and political life were up for grabs. A city that was simply porous to any and all influences from the outside was no longer really a city. See, that's the point. Therefore, when Nehemiah comes back and he sees this disastrous situation, his first move was to give the order to rebuild the walls, to reestablish the integral life of Jerusalem and therefore of Israel. Then, with the help of Ezra, who was a priest, he sought to reconstitute the people morally, spiritually, and intellectually. How did he do it? Well, he recovered a copy of the Torah the first five books of the Bible, and made sure that the people were made to listen to it in its entirety. We hear now in our first reading for today, men, women, and children all stood from dawn until noon and listened to the law. You think you have long sermons to listen to. These people stood for six hours and they listened as the whole Torah was read to them. 
Now, with these two moves, one relatively political, you might say, rebuilding the walls, the other spiritual, reading the Torah, with those two moves, Ezra and Nehemiah built up the people of Israel, remade them, saved them. And this was not merely of practical or political importance. For Israel had long recognized its mission in the world, namely to bring the God of Israel to all the nations. But as the old adage has it, nemo dot quad non habit, no one gives what he doesn't have. Therefore, Israel had to, listen now, preserve itself from the world precisely for the sake of the world. Let me say that again, because that's the principle I want to really bring out in this sermon. They had to preserve themselves from the world. They had to have their own integral identity, precisely because they had a great mission in the world and for the world. If Israel lost its way, if its walls were breached, if it lost its identity and integrity, then it couldn't be a sign of Yahweh for the sake of the world. It's a paradox that people will often miss, I think. Identity for the sake of mission. Separation, if you want, but for the sake of connection. Well, in this reading now, which I think is, is so beautiful, we hear the people were so moved. They were so overjoyed upon hearing the Torah that they wept. They had forgotten who they were, and the rediscovery elated them. It's very interesting, isn't it, this process by which we discover who we are. The walls are built. The city is defended. It has its own integrity. But then the stories are told. See, so think for a second how we discover who we are at varying levels through a similar process. How do we know what it means to be an American? Well, we hear the great stories of American history. Accounts of George Washington and Benjamin Franklin, Abraham Lincoln, FDR. We hear of the Revolutionary War, the fight to abolish slavery, the Civil War, the great world wars of the 20th century, the Great Depression, etc. We hear the stories of the country. If we stopped hearing those stories, we'd forget who we are, right? As Americans, we forget who we are. Watch this dynamic, by the way, in the initiation rituals of primal peoples. When a young man is taken away from his home, and then, usually in the company of the uh, male leaders of the tribe, he's told the stories. He discovers thereby who he is, to whom he belongs. Now, the same is true in our experience of our ethnic and family identities. I'm Irish. 
it means a lot to the Irish, you know, the story of uh, the Irish emigration because of struggles back home, the immigration to countries like Canada, Australia, the U.S., the struggles the Irish had, how they established themselves, their songs and their poems. I remember as a kid hearing all of that, finding pride and identity in being Irish. Same with our family identities, right? Stories of, of aunts and uncles and grandparents and great-grandparents. Our own immediate family now, over time, is, is uh, um, characterized by all sorts of lore and legend and history. And so, it is eminently true of our religious identities. Israel was in danger of losing its religious identity forgetting who it was. And so Ezra and Nehemiah rebuild the walls and they tell the stories, they recite the Torah, and so the people discover who they are. One of my fears, as you know, I've talked about it before, is in the years following Vatican II, the years when I was coming of age, the walls of the church became so porous and the stories, frankly, so infrequently or so poorly told that a lot of people in my generation forgot what it means to be Catholic. You know, I'm driving it here. We were so encouraged to be open to the wider culture, to listen to what's going on in the world outside the church. Our walls became porous. For a lot of people my generation, to be Catholic was more or less identical to being a nice person. But the church is the new Israel. And therefore, our identity is tied up with the great stories and the great history and the personages of Israel. Listen, the same stories that Ezra read to the people thousands of years ago. That's how we discover who we are. As I say, though, after Vatican II, there was such a stress on openness to the culture and to modernization that I think we allowed the walls to be compromised. Vatican II indeed told us to attend to the signs of the times, but that didn't mean that we should surrender to the times. Yes, we must read those signs and see which are congruent and which are incongruent with the gospel. In other words, yeah, open the windows, but don't tear down the walls. And the goal of Vatican II was not primarily to modernize the church. It was to Christify the world. Again, think of the vocation of Israel. It had to maintain itself in integrity so that it could be assigned to the nations. The modern culture, the one that surrounds us, is pretty much like any other culture up and down the ages in the sense that it's to some degree in line with the gospel and to some degree incongruent with it. We shouldn't allow the culture to be the norm of the church, but just the opposite. Unless we know who we are, we will not have a properly transformative influence on the world. So, 
Walls are important. But as I've been indicating with Israel in mind, the ultimate purpose of the church is not to hunker down behind those walls. The ultimate purpose is to let the life out in the manner of Noah's ark. Right, The minute he was able, Noah let the life that he had preserved out. See, that's the rhythm I'm talking about here. If, if the walls of Noah's ark had been porous, if they had been compromised or breached in some way, the ark would have sunk, and with it, all the life on it. So walls are important. Identity is important. Integrity is important. Yes, even defending ourselves against the culture is important. However, the life was not meant to stay on Noah's ark. It was meant now to flood the world. Walls are important, and so are windows or bridges. And it's the rhythm between the two that is central to the health of the church. I might close with John Henry Newman's great image, which is opposite here. The church is not an organization. The church is an organism. It's a living thing. A living thing whose organic system or skeletal system or, or um, nervous system is compromised will die. It has to have its own integrity. At the same time, an animal that's not able to relate to its environment, assimilating what it can, will also die. It's that rhythm between walls and bridges, between resistance and assimilation, that's key to the survival of the organism of the church. I think all that, friends, can be gleaned from this great lesson of Ezra and Nehemiah. And God bless you. Thank you for listening to this week's homily from Bishop Robert Barron. For more resources from Bishop Barron, please visit wordonfire.org.